on time like Clay will actually just be a little bit later, but that's all right. Let's get started with a word of prayer tonight. Father, we do bow before you and thank you for your presence in this place. Father, I thank you for watching over and guiding us. Father, I pray for this evening that this time would be uh, a time that would glorify and honor you in what's said and what's done. Father, I pray that uh, and thank you in advance for the Holy Spirit leading us into the truth of your word. Because we're told by Jesus that's exactly what he does. And Father, we thank you for that. And Father, I pray for this time that you will redeem this time. Um, and, and again, make it a, uh, may it be a, a sweet sacrifice for you uh, as we offer this time to you tonight. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. All right, let's spend a few minutes talking about, um, is there a little more light up here? Huh? A little more light? Um, it's, it's, ah, thank you. It's kind of dark. Um, from, from last week, we talked, um, started the, the first part of, of looking at the principles of church discipline and I want to review some of the points that we talked about last week. First of all, what ministry are every one of us called to? Say it again. Peacemaking. Okay. I'm looking for another word. There you go. We're called to a... And peacemaking reconciliation it could be the same thing, but it could be a little bit different. But God tells us we are called to a ministry of reconciliation. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So if you are here tonight and you are called by God, you are redeemed and changed by the blood, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and a Christ follower you are called to a ministry of reconciliation. That's not just a few in the body. It's everyone. Okay. Um, put the first slide up, if you would. First of mine. That's the first one. Oh, back up. Right there. Okay. You remember the three points or directions of the, of the path of the peacemaker. What is the first point? Where do we go first? Say it again. Yeah, we ascend to the Father. Okay, that's what we have to do first. If, if we go to try to reconcile a relationship with someone and we've not spent any time with the Father, then we've gotten things out of order. And it's probably going to be a mess. It might be a little helpful, you know, that you might get a little bit done, but the potential is to be a great big mess. You don't want to go there. All right, so then what's the second? After we spend time with the Father, then what do we do? Where, where does it come back to? Back to self. And we reflect. Okay. We reflect on what God has shown us and what God has revealed to us in our time of prayer and study as we ascended to Him. Only then do we take that third step and we connect with the other person. Okay, so the three points are to ascend, then reflect, and then connect. Okay, that's always the way we need to do that. We don't need to get that out of order. Now, why should we, consp 
Why should we consider the log and speck principle in reconciliation? What's involved in that? Okay, uh, but what is the log in what is the log in spec? Let's talk about that first. Right, yeah, the Matthew seven. Before you go and take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye, you got to remove the log out of your own eye. Make sure that your vision is clear, and make sure that there's no idol involved that could be contributing to the problem. Okay. Um, all right, let's look up. Put up the next slide. The slippery slope of idolatry. Scott, every time this comes up, Scott goes, I love that thing. You know, it is. This, this is one of the, I don't know, one of the clearest tools, and I've used it. You know, I've, I was at the, the Peacemakers Conference uh, two weeks ago now, and I've used it numerous times already just in the last week and a half in counseling. Um, but it works very clearly. All right. It starts at the top, and the, the first D what, where, where do we typically start on this? It's not the slippery slope yet, but it, it, it starts there. So what's that first D? Something we want. A desire. Okay. If that desire is not met, and it, it works this way, I want, and, and, and you, or I would like, and then you fill in the blank, whatever that is. It's, if that's not met, it slides down to... The second point, which sounds like this, I must have. So what is that D? Demand. Yeah. When it's I must have, that's a demand. If that's not met, it slides down again. And that statement is you will give me. And that E is what? Expectation. Yeah. Slides down to expectation. Then if that's not met... The statement is, you did not give me my desires, and that leads to that next D, which is what? Disappointment, yeah. Oh, and by the way, I did get my, my hearing aids back, but you still need to speak up. <laughs> okay. I got them back today, and it's really, it's, it's, it's kind of nice to hear again. All right. If from disappointment it slides down to... And this is a statement, because you did not give me my desires, you are, and then fill in the blank. And that's what? Starts with a J. Judgment. Okay, it leads to judgment. Then from there, it goes to the last point. Because you didn't give me my desires, I will, and you fill in the blank, and that P stands for punishment. Yeah. And that's the slippery slope of idolatry. Now, how you, how you reverse that, you back up and you see what that desire is. And it may be, it may be an okay desire. Okay. It may be okay to have that desire. It may not be a sinful thing. But it may not be met. So if it's not met, you let it stay as a, as a desire. But you don't let it slide down any further into that slippery slope. As it starts slipping, you need to back up and say, ooh, what is this attitude I've got? You can look at that and go, ah, okay, I need to back up. Okay. Right. Um, we talked about the four promises of forgiveness. Uh, go ahead and put that third, that next slide up. Okay, the four promises of forgiveness. First of all, it says, I will not dwell on this incident. 
What that refers to is not remembering. When God says he forgives our sins, he promises to forget our sins. Is that what he promises? No, he doesn't. <laughs> Forgive and forget is a man-made term. That is not a, that's not in the scripture. Now he talks about the sea of forgetfulness. Okay, But what God promises is that he will forgive our sins and never remember our sins against us again. Okay, so this point is I will not dwell on this incident. It means I'm not going to remember it. Okay, And the way it looks is something pops into your mind that you've forgiven and you have to immediately put that out of your mind and think about something else. Okay, Remembering is thinking of the incident, pulling all the details back together, bringing it to your working memory, which is the frontal lobe right up here. Okay, And you can even re-experience the emotions and the hurt of that. When you forgive someone, you promise to never do that again. If it pops into your mind, you stop, you pray through that, and you get busy thinking about something else. You don't dwell on the incident. So that's one of the promises. The second promise is, I will not bring this incident up again and use it against you. That's the other aspect of number one. Okay, God says he will never remember our sins against us again. In other words, God will never accuse us of what he's forgiven ever again. When you stand before God on judgment day, he's not going to run down your list of sins. You know, and that was, that was the picture that I had when I was a little boy. You know, that, that when you get to heaven, you know, my scroll, you know, God throws the scroll out there and it goes out there five miles and he goes over my sins one at a time. No, he doesn't. He never remembers our sins against us again. And so we'll not bring this incident up again and use it against you. Now, when does that most typically happen? Anybody involved in a relationship or in a marriage... When is it easiest to remember everything that your partner has ever done? <laughs> when you're upset. I'm not going to use Jeff's words because we're not supposed to fight. But when you're upset or when you're angry, you can remember everything, can't you? I mean, it's like, there it is. Okay, you've promised not to go there. You promised not to bring it up again. Um, and Kendra and I had been married for about two weeks. This was... 1978, so moved back in time a ways. Um, and she was really quiet one day. I'd come in from work. She'd come in from work, and she was just really kind of quiet sitting there. And I said, are you okay? I'm, I'm still trying to figure this out, you know. Um, and, and I didn't have a good grip on it at all. I did not. Um, thought I did. I didn't. And she said, yeah, I'm fine. And I said, are you sure you're okay? Have I, have I done anything wrong? She said, I don't know. Ask me when I'm mad. <laughs> and I said, are you mad? She said, no. And I said, okay, great. Let's have supper. <laughs> you know, so I, just, I just moved right on out of the room. You know. uh, but th there's some truth behind that. But the commitment we make when we forgive is to not bring it up in an accusing way again. The third promise of forgiveness is I will not talk to others about this incident. Again, the principle in in dealing with situations and reconciling, dealing with church discipline, you keep things as small as possible. It starts off with that little first, that little, that little point. We'll see that diagram again in a little bit. But the self-discipline, nobody else knows. Then it's one-to-one. -one. And then it's a few others. And then it, it, it grows. 
But God wants us to keep things as small as possible as we walk through this. So when, you know, when you're walking through this and when you forgive, you make a commitment. You know, nobody else is going to know about this. You know, if anybody knows, you're going to tell them. But you need to agree that nobody will. Or just, it stays small. The fourth promise is, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Because if we have forgiven, and we'll talk about all the, all the process of that a little bit later tonight, but as we work through that, then we're moving toward reconciliation. And again, what does reconciliation look like? Is there anything, when reconciliation takes place, is there anything between the two parties? Okay, think about it this way. We're reconciled to God. Is there anything that stands between us and God? No. And I'm so thankful for that. You know, and that is an absolutely tremendous truth. Uh, do you remember the little poem of the Young Peacemakers curriculum? It's a little eight-word poem that Ken Sandy's wife came up with. Right, go ahead and put that slide up. This is just so cool. A good thought, hurt you not, gossip never, friends forever. Yeah. That and just a very eight words sums up those, those four promises of forgiveness. And, and we can live in that. Um, okay, so that, that's the review from last week. Um, why do you think today... Across, across our culture in the United States, in the Western Hemisphere, why do you think that church discipline is not being carried out consistently in fellowships that would call themselves New Testament churches? Why do you think discipline is not being worked through properly? Okay, fear of being named, a, being seen as a hypocrite, is that what you're saying? Okay, yeah. Um, there, there's, there's a fear of consequences, okay? What if you get sued? You know, if a church disciplines someone, what if there's a suit? Well, in the mid-80s, and I hadn't heard of any since then, I'm sure there are some, but in the mid-80s, I was, I was aware of a situation, a church in Oklahoma had disciplined an individual and removed them from fellowship. Okay. And they went to court. And the, the pastor and the elders were represented. Um, the other person was represented by legal authority. And the judge said, by what authority did you do this? And they laid the Bible up on the judge's bench. And, he, and they showed him, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, and the judge ruled in favor of the church. That the church had the authority to do exactly what they did. Now, there, there may be cases today that's gone the other direction. Again, I didn't research that. I, you know, but we have seen that. You know. um,
Yeah, yeah. They, they just run. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that, Jerry, is people have lost the recognition of the authority of the church. We have set that aside. And people have lost that because guess what? Church leadership has set it aside. You know, if someone is angry and they're not coming, our typical stance in this day and time is we go and talk to them and we beg them. Please come back. Please give us another chance. Rather than standing on the authority of God's word and saying, in a loving way, this is where you belong. You need to come back and be reconciled. Come back and help us walk through this in the right way. You know, but people don't recognize that authority anymore. And when, when authority was released in the Old Testament, think about Exodus 32, the golden calf incident. Right, Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. And when he, came down, when he came down, he said the people had been let loose. Do you remember who Moses blamed? Aaron. Not this Aaron. Different Aaron. Your namesake. <laughs> because in the scripture it said the people were let loose. And it says in parentheses because Aaron had let them loose. Leadership caved to the demands. Okay. So the loss of recognition of authority is one of it, is one thing. Um, honestly, church discipline was misused in the past. Uh, when I heard this talk by Dr. Adams in 1986, he had minutes and notes from, from Westminster Presbyterian churches up in New England back in the 1800s. And he read some of the excerpts of some of the what's referred to as backdoor revivals. And when I came back from that, and I'll get back to that in a minute. When I came back from that seminar and I was talking to my mom, she said, well, what is it you learned? I said, mom, I heard the principles of church discipline taught for the very first time in my life. I said, I'm so excited because it is something that Christ gave us to help operate the, the New Testament church. She said, oh, Morris, be careful. Be so very careful with that. She grew up in a missionary Baptist church in Blooming Grove, Texas, down near Corsicana. You know, population 725. Used to be 726, but she moved. <laughs> okay. Um, and then she went home to be in, with, with the Lord in heaven. But anyway, she said she remembered as a little girl, her mom and dad, or basically her dad, you know, going to a, a called meeting, and he would come back just in tears. Because what had happened, a, a, group, of, a group of the... Men, the deacons, and the one elder got together and they voted someone out. They, it's called, that's, that's why it's called a backdoor revival. They would meet, the person wouldn't be there. They'd talk about it and they'd vote and they'd be gone. And then they would make the announcement the next day. Oh, by the way, we voted you out of the church last night. You know, and my grandfather would come home with, after those meetings just in tears because of the misuse of, of God's word. So because of that, misuse a lot of churches shy away from that okay but also people just don't want discipline okay it involves unpleasant events doesn't it okay think back when you were a child okay some of you it's a little easier to think back that far than some of the other of us but i've got a great memory um 
How many times were you disciplined that involved something really, really good and sweet and nice? <laughs> I, re- I remember the spankings. I don't, I don't remember really anything positive in those things other than as I look back and I had been trained, I had been taught. And that was always, you know, at least the ones that I can remember, you know, that was always my mom and dad's purpose. And for those of you that are here, here tonight that are parents, if your purpose in disciplining your child, even though it may involve painful events, is to teach them and shape them and move them toward God in their life, that, that's the purpose. To see if you have any other thought in your mind when you're about to spank your child or take something away from them or remove a privilege or set them in a corner. If your purpose is anything other than a gut-wrenching, I wish I didn't have to do this, then you need to step back, re-examine before you say anything to your child. Okay. Because discipline involves in unpleasant events, but it should be for the purpose of restoring and moving that individual back toward a right relationship between the, between the, the parent and the child or between the individual and God. That's what it must always involve. But see, there's another reason um, that, that, that I've seen that church discipline is not being carried out. And that is the desire for big churches. Think about it. Um, a church that practices discipline, someone comes in, they're like, ooh, you mean you've got expectations of me? You want me to do what? You want me to be in a life group? You want me to be faithful in all things? Really? And if I don't, what's going to happen? Ooh, okay, I'm out of here. You know, that, and and I've heard Ben a couple of times, you know, over the years say, well, be praying for this sermon this week because it may fix our parking problem. (laughs) You know, some people just don't want to hear the truth. They want their ears tickled. And this is one of these truths in God's word. That's not an ear tickling thing. No. But consider this. And there's two individuals here tonight that are on our finance team. What if the person coming under discipline is one of the biggest financial contributors? What if that person gives more than anybody else? And you're about to bring them into a situation where they may get angry and leave. And they take their checkbook with them. Folks, that's another reason that churches don't practice discipline. And I've seen exceptions made, you know, over the years. And and what I've done in counseling and working with other churches. I've seen exceptions made for that very reason. desire for big churches, looking for numbers. Now, there are excuses, and, I, and I'll share, you know, a couple of excuses. I've been, I've been involved in a number of situations over the years, you know, helping other churches work through disciplinary measures and issues. Um, one of the first ones that comes to mind, I won't give you all the details because that's just not the right thing to do, but it was in 1988, and there was an individual that was, there was a woman that was going to another fellowship 
she was under discipline by another fellowship in the county, but she was a fleeing Jonah. She had left, and she was attending this other fellowship, and that pastor, you know, welcomed this woman with open arms. And I went and talked to him. You know, I made an appointment, and he said, well, you know, you know, come on in. So we went and we talked. And so I explained the situation. He said, you know, Morris, it's 1988. We don't do things like that anymore. And I picked up my Bible, and I turned to Matthew 15. I said, would you do me a favor, brother? And I love this guy. I mean, I really do. I did, still do. And I said, would you, would you read this passage, Matthew 18? You know, verse 15 through 20, and, and he did. And I said, do you see a date in there? Is there an exclusion clause or an exception clause? He said, well, no, I know what you're getting at, but we just don't do things like that anymore. Well, about six months later, maybe seven months later, he called me and asked my forgiveness. And he explained the situation that that woman had been in the church. She had an affair with one of the deacons in that fellowship. And broke up that marriage. And he said, I, I was afraid of the consequences. I didn't want to do it because I didn't think we did that, that anymore. He said, I need you to teach me step by step how this works. And so we spent some time together. There was another situation where the church simply wouldn't do it. It wasn't just the pastor saying, no, we don't do it. The church, the leadership said, no, we're not going to do that. And here was the situation. There was a, there was a, a young girl that... You know, grew up in a youth group here in the, here in the area, um, maintained her, her, her spiritual integrity and her physical purity all through high school. She went to college. Her first semester, she met a guy, started dating. She compromised her, her, her spiritual and her, her beliefs, and she became pregnant. So she came back home for Christmas um, and called and, and made an appointment. And we talked, and she said, well, you know, what do I do? She's devastated. I said, well, first of all, have you made this right with God? She said, I have. I said, okay. You need to make it right with your parents. You need to confess to them. So she did. And everything, you know, they were, they were hurt. They were wounded, but they forgave. They loved her. I said, now you need to go to the pastor. And she said, why do I need to go to the pastor? I said, because in just a few months, everybody in your fellowship will know that you compromised those principles. And everybody's going to know that you're pregnant, and you need to confess that to the church. So she did. She went to the pastor, and she told him, she confessed to him, and he forgave her. And he said, well, you know, what else do you want to talk about? And she said, I want to stand before the church. And he said, are you crazy? That was a quote. Are you crazy? She said, no, I'll, I'll talk to Morris Bean, and that's what he advised me to do. So he picks up the phone with her still sitting in the office, and he, I answered the phone, and he said, I just got one question. I said, what? He said, are you crazy? And I said, no, sir, I'm not. And so I, <laughs> at least I didn't think I was, you know, and, and went through some steps, and I said, you know, what this is going to do, if you allow her to stay, she's willing to do it, to stand before the congregation and confess and do it in a family meeting, okay, because visitors and stuff, they don't need to be there, but to stand before the congregation and confess and ask for forgiveness, that's going to immediately stop the rumor mill. It just shuts it down. And they can then be praying for her and for the family and come around them and, and love them. But the pastor refused to do it. Four months later, the rumor mill had started and was rampant. 
that young lady had to leave the church and leave the community. And so, once again, a pastor called me and he said, I think I messed up. What can I, is it too late? And I said, no, it's not too late. He said, you're going to have to stand before the congregation. You're going to have to confess your sin, first and foremost, that you were wrong in, in, in what happened. And you didn't protect this girl and you didn't protect the body. And so he did that. He, they called a family meeting of, of, of the fellowship. He had, he, she agreed to come back. He talked to the church first. He asked, he confessed his sin um, of not willing to follow God's word. And they prayed for him that night. And then the young lady came out and confessed his sin. And everything worked. You know, so it, it wasn't too late. But if the church won't do what God's word says, then the church needs to be disciplined. And God will take care of that. And then someone said one time, well, the situation has gone too far. Really? You know, a God that spoke creation into existence with a simple word, and there was light. You know, with another statement, that in every aspect of creation, he had the power to speak that into existence. And a situation goes too far that God can't heal? No. No, that doesn't work either. So none of those excuses work. We can ask ourselves why discipline can work. First and foremost, God commands it. Yeah. Look at Matthew 18, verse 15. He doesn't say, if you want to do this, or if you think it's a good idea, or if you haven't got anything better to do, then go to this person and try to make it right. He didn't say that. He said, go. It's a command. So God commands it. Secondly, God provides this as a gift to us as believers. See, when, when we think about God, the principles of church discipline as a gift, that, that, that's a completely different perception. You know, it helps change our perceptions. Because see, if I were, and going back to the, to the court case in Oklahoma, um, if, for example... I get off the reservation, and I, I go crazy, okay? And, and, and I'm, I'm living in sin, okay? And I mean, I'm, I'm gone. See, it is my right for my brothers, and I'm looking at several of them here tonight, a lot of them. It, it is my right for my brothers to come and get me. It's my right to be disciplined. You ever thought about that way? That, that's pretty upside down from what the world looks at. But that's exactly what it is because it's given by Christ to us in the New Testament church as a gift for believers. Yeah. And if we look at it as a gift... Then we, we embrace that and say, you know what? I'm being disciplined, but you know, it's my right to be disciplined. And nobody in the world would make that up. That's why we know it comes from God. You know, um, because uh, you know, mankind just wouldn't do that. The third reason that discipline can work is that God wants it. We talked last week about God desiring 
relationships to be reconciled. God is a relational God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, with the three persons of God, that in itself shows us that God is relational. And he created us in community. God wants relationships, and he wants right relationships. Because you see, if there's no discipline in the church, and I'm not talking about, you know, walking around frowning and flogging ourselves, you know, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about right walking with God. Again, using those principles of the, the, the spirit of the disciplines that Scott had taught through you know, last year. Using those things in our lives and our self-discipline as we walk with God. Then there's a, there's a difference between the world and the church. And that's what God desires. Because if the church looks just like the world, if, if the church is just a country club, what is there to draw people to God? nothing so there has to be a difference so God wants relationships he wants the discipline to be there but he wants it to demonstrate a difference between us and the world because if we don't do that there's no right and wrong there's only situational ethics which is pretty much the way our society works today whatever we deem right today is going to be right today if we change that tomorrow then what was right today is going to be wrong tomorrow, and something, something different tomorrow is going to be right. Situational ethics is, is what the world operates under. You know, whoever, whatever the majority says is, is true. No, God doesn't work under situational ethics. He works under an antithetical relationship. That's a really fancy word that means either or. Okay? We're either for God or we're against him. It's either holy or it's evil. It's either of God or it's of the world. Okay? And under the, under the direction of Satan. We like to have a gray area. You know, we, we, know that, we know that holy is here and we know that evil is here and eh, I'm somewhere in between. Okay, now we, we can't do that. Matthew 12, 30. Jesus established this very clearly. He said, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. See, with discipline, there's light and there's dark. There's a saltiness in the church that's there because we walk with God in an obedient manner. Loving one another. Challenging one another. Grabbing the knothead and dragging him back in to right relationship. And if that's me out there, again, I... I hope my brothers would come and get me and, and drag me back. Okay, Because uh, if I see one of my brothers off the reservation, I'm going after him. Okay. We must do that. Why? Because God tells us to. Because God is a relational God and he wants us to be a relational people. Alright, let's, let's move on. Go, go to this next slide. We're going to look at this that we saw last week. Um, the process of church discipline. Again, on this far side over here, my right, your left. Yeah, left, okay. <laughs> I have to go back to the second thing. This is my left. Um, over on this end, the number one, the first step is self-discipline. That's what we do every day in, in a right relationship with God. Number two is what we talked about last week of going one-to-one. -one. 
if your brother has sinned, you go to them. Okay. Um, and, and, and let's look at Matthew, 15, or Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Okay, so if you go one-to-one, and this is not just a one-time event. Okay, if you're going to a brother or sister and trying to restore and reconcile, the first time you show up, you may get the hand. You may get the door slammed. That has happened. Right? So what do you do? Do you just immediately go to the next step? No, 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 no. You go back and you pray about it. Think through it. You ask God for wisdom. You ask God for a softening of the other person's heart. You go back and you ring the doorbell again. Or you call them and say, hey, let's go have a cup of coffee. You know, or whatever. And you talk to them again. Okay. If there's no progress and you leave, you go back and you pray about it. And you go again. And you go again. And you go again, and you go again until God gives you a release that, okay, this is not going anywhere. There's no evidence of, of positive movement. So then and only then do you go to the next step. Okay. So if one-on-one didn't work over a long period of time, then you take one or two others with you. Now, who are these one or two others that you take? What is their role? Witnesses, okay, that's their second role. Okay, what is their primary role? You're taking one or two others for what purpose? Protection, maybe, maybe. Yeah, exactly. You're looking for a wisdom of plurality. Okay, we all know that there's a greater wisdom in plurality. Guess what? That's why we have three elders. There's not just one. There's, there's a plurality. And there's a plurality in leadership. There's a plurality in the deacons. There's a plurality in, in our life group shepherds. Okay? That's why. There's a greater wisdom there. So do you, you know, if, 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 if I'm upset with Bill, and I'm really not, okay, so there, there, this, this isn't a demonstration um, in real life. If I'm upset with Bill, and, and he's being stubborn, He's being hard-headed, which doesn't fit Bill, okay, at least from my experience. But let's say he's playing that role, all right? Then I think, okay, I need somebody to go with me, and so I pick two of my best friends that also have issues with Bill. Is that who I take? <laughs> Bill sees me and two of my buds that are, that are big. He's not going to open the door. <laughs> no, you don't take... Someone that's going to side with you. You pray through it and you find one or two others that have wisdom, have demonstrated wisdom. 
and have demonstrated a neutrality in working through things. Okay. And then we go. Because what may happen is I'm sitting there, we've got two others, say so we got, you know, we got Brad and Jerry sitting there and, and they're listening to the situation. I'm laying out the story and Bill lays out his side. And I'm convinced in my own mind that I'm right. And, you know, Brad and Jerry listen to it and they're like, um, Morris, I, I, I don't think you're seeing this right. And so they explain it. And I change my mind. Okay, so they're there as counselors. They're there as, as conciliators. They're there as peacemakers. Okay, and that's what we're looking at. But if my perceptions are right and Bill is off the reservation and there's no progress there, then they do serve as witnesses so that everything that was done can be testified by more than one mouth. Okay. But their initial purpose there is to be conciliators, okay. to be peacemakers. All right. So if it doesn't work with two or three others, then, now we move, and there's a, another little line at the very bottom. On the left side, over here, that's the informal steps. Okay, self-discipline, one-on-one, one or two others. That's the informal steps of discipline. When that doesn't work, now we're moving to this side, and those are really the formal steps of discipline. Because then you take it to the church. And I, I believe this involves two steps. First of all, the elders are brought into it. And there's a reason why we have a need for peacemaking teams. And folks, we've already got a bunch of people trained in this fellowship. We've already got a peacemaking team ready to go. And there's others who are gifted who can do that. We'll get, you know, hopefully we're going to have training. Hopefully we're going to have Path of the Peacemakers here next year. Um, I've already talked to them and we're going to try to set that up. Um, so that I would love for all the deacons and the deacons' wives and all the small group or the life group shepherds and their wives and every man, woman, child to go through and guess what? We'll all be peacemakers. You know, <laughs> what a great time that would be. You know, it, I, that, that's a dream um, and it's a desire and I'm going to work real hard not to slide down a slippery slope of <laughs> idolatry in that. I'll try to keep, keep that lesson in mind. All right, but in, in this situation, the, the elders... And, uh, and quite honestly, the elders don't need to be brought into the situation until this point. That's why we have all of us called to a ministry of reconciliation. Because if there's a problem with a, with a church member, okay, the elders are going to serve a role. And so we literally, as we work through that in the right way, we're protecting our elders. Okay, so they don't go into it with too soon with a skewed perception on that. We, it, they come into it with the wisdom that God gives them as the elders and they deal with it and they go to the person and they talk and they work and pray and, and work to draw them back into right relationship. If that doesn't work, then we go to the second step of, of the second part of step four and the church body gets involved. Now do we do this on Sunday mornings at the end of our, our corporate worship? Why don't we do it on Sunday mornings in corporate worship? 
Exactly. We have non-family members present on Sunday mornings. This is a family matter. There's non-believers that are here on Sunday mornings. They don't need to go through this. They don't need to see that. They're, they're not a member of the family. So we do a family meeting. Okay. And what is the purpose of bringing them together and telling them the, the situation? So that everybody can talk about it? No, this is not a rumor mill thing. This is to get them involved in praying. If nothing else, then we've, we've, we've broadened our base of prayer cover. Okay? And that's powerful. Okay? But we also open opportunities. Someone else may have a relationship with that wayward individual, and they can then go and talk to them and encourage them, please come back. Okay? We, not just please come back lovingly. We want you to come back. You need to come back. You must come back. This is where you belong. And it may be one of those or several of those church members that will be influential in bringing that person back. Because keep in mind, every one of these steps, 2, 3, 4A, 4B, we'll see even 5, is for one purpose and one purpose only. And that's to reconcile someone who is out of right relationship with God and out of right relationship with at least one other person or in the church. It's about reconciliation. Okay. That's the purpose. Now, step five. And, and some people would say that step five is the final step. It's not. Um, step five is if the person refuses to listen to the elders, they refuse to listen to the body, then in Matthew 18, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, the two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay. So that person's removed from fellowship. Okay. And what do we do for people who are removed from fellowship? First and foremost, we don't treat them as a brother and sister. They're not. Okay. But what do we do for those who don't know Jesus? For anybody in the community that doesn't know Jesus, what do we do? Pray for them. Always the first step. Prayer is always our first resource. It's not our last resort. It's our first resource. What do we do after we pray for them? Oh, sorry. We can call them to repentance, yes. But keep in mind, the reason that they're removed from fellowship is so that they feel the sting of that removal. Because that can motivate them to then come back. They need, they need to feel the sting of the removal. So to treat them as brother or sister in Christ, we can't do that. To share a fellowship meal with them, we can't do that. We can pray for them. When we see them, we can encourage them. I really miss you. Come back. Okay. But that's what this is designed for. And folks, that is not the last step. Dr. Adams made the statement in 1986, and he was teaching these principles. And he said, you know, I've looked through all the books, and I've read through all the books that have been published up to this point. He said, I was hoping I wouldn't have to write another book. And he was a prolific, prolific writer. He wrote over 80 books dealing with biblical principles of counseling and 
just, just very godly. God used him in such tremendous ways. He said, but all the books I've seen stop with, with step five. In fact, most of them didn't even include step one, which was self-discipline. It started with the one-on-one thing. So he said, so I'm, really, I'm going to have to publish this book because step five is not the end. Okay. God bless you. We're going we're gonna to talk about maybe next week, Scott, <laughs> what this is going to look like. Okay. But step five is not the last thing. Step five is part of the process. But again, the purpose of removing someone from fellowship is not to get rid of a hard-headed person. It's not. If that were the case, I'd be in line next. And all of us would just have to follow suit. Okay? Because there are no perfect people in the fellowship. There are none. So it's not about getting rid of a stubborn, hard-headed, you know, whatever. It's not about that. It's about to bring, it's, it's got to be bringing them back to a reconciled relationship with God and then with the fellowship. That's got to be the purpose. So if it's, you go through step five and then you're like, we're done. Uh-uh. No, you're not. Not even close. You're just getting started still. Now, let me, let me go back. Some people look at, now we've read Matthew 18, verses, 17, verses 15 through 20. Some people see Luke 17, 3. I want you to turn to that. They see that as a parallel passage. That it's saying the same things. Guys, I don't see that. They actually see that as a different aspect of what God provides for us. Okay. Luke 17.3 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Sounds really a lot like Matthew 18.15, doesn't it? It does. But that first phrase, pay attention. Okay. That's, that's, that's the aspect. Because what if, what if you think there may be a problem with a brother or sister, but you're not sure? Okay, Matthew 18, 15 doesn't apply. Because Matthew 18, 15 is talking about an absolutely known offense. Okay. But what if it's not absolutely known? Then what do we do? We apply Luke 17, 3. That says, you go tentatively. You go to see if there is an offense. And that's what it means to pay attention. Some some other translations say, go cautiously. Okay, And Dr. Adams pointed out the difference in that. And I was like, wow, that's huge. Because guess what? Then both situations are covered. If you know there's an offense... We've got Matthew 18, 15. If you think there might be an offense, but you're not quite sure, we've got Luke 17, 3. And we go quietly again, and we say, Now, Jeff, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think I heard you say this the other day. And if, if that's what I heard, ah, man, we got something to work through. And then Jeff says, No, that's not what I said. This is what I said. It's like, Oh, that's all the difference in the world. So see, there Luke 17.3 helps cover potential misunderstandings of things. So you get it straightened out and you move on. 
Now, if Jeff, if Jeff says, yep, that's what I said, that's what I meant, and I ain't backing up. Okay, then we go to the next step, <laughs> okay? Because then there is a known offense. But, you know, I, I think it's important for us to see that, again, in God's Word, it covers the aspects of our lives from every facet. And a passage that looks parallel is not really because it covers a different aspect of, of what we need to do in reconciling relationships and being called to that ministry of reconciliation. Yes? Absolutely. You know, the, the, the church is not, you know, a, a sanctuary for saints. <laughs> you know, if they come and they hear, they're, but they're not treated as a brother or sister, you're, you know, you're right there. But they can be here and they can hear the word because guess what? The word convicts the heart. And what better place could they be? And that may be what God uses to draw them back. But again, it's not brother or sister. And that's, I mean, it's, it's hard, folks, to walk through that. It's very hard. But it's so sweet when you go to step six. And I just ran out of room on my diagram. That, that's why six isn't up there. We'll talk about that next time. Um, what if, I want to cover two more little points here, and then we're going to close for the night, and we'll continue next week. What if the person coming under discipline is in leadership in the church? Are leaders protected in Scripture? Do this. They are. There's a level of protection for the leaders. 1 Timothy 5.19 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, because Ben, Scott, Brad stand up here in the pulpit and I think we could poll them and ask them and I think they would say yes to this question. Do you ever feel like you're wearing a target? I mean, you can. You know, the person that, that stands up here week after week after week may offend somebody and they leave and then they file a charge. Maybe they send letters. And I've never asked that question. Crosspoint may receive letters, and many, most of the time, many times they're unsigned as an accusation against one of the leaders. See, our leaders are protected in that there must be evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay. Um, it just seems that the pastor comes under attack more frequently. Because they're facing the entire congregation on a week-in, week-out basis. Okay, does that mean that they cannot be disciplined? No, that's not what I said. No. But the charges, has to be, have, the charges have to be made by two or three witnesses. Now, what about a church leader who has been disciplined and then reconciled? Okay, they, they, they come back, they've repented, they've asked for forgiveness, and they're restored... I won't have to quit because this is going to get into next week. But let me say this. They're restored as fully-fledged members. Okay, They're brought back in. They are 
and if we want to do the Southern Baptist thing, they are fully Wednesday night business meeting voting members. <laughs> For those of you that have no clue what I just said, bless you. <laughs> I'll explain it later if you want me to. Huh? Yes, very blessed, very blessed. Okay. But they're, they're full members. But are they, are they restored to their leadership rank? Not yet. Not yet. Because the leaders, if you look at the qualifications of elders and deacons, they're tried first. So if someone is brought back into fellowship that was a leader before, brought back into fellowship and they're restored and they go through the fish dinner and everything is wonderful and great and they're brothers and hallelujah, they're not leaders until they indicate that there's an aspiration for that leadership and they're tried and they're tested by the body to see if they still qualify. But they're not put back in that leadership role immediately. They are brought back as members. Hallelujah, they are. They are absolutely. Okay. And I'm going to quit with that. Um, and, and I just gave a, a, a hint. Step six is what? Restoration. Reconciliation. That's what we're going to talk about next week. And more of the how-tos in that. Um, so are there any questions about tonight thus far? Okay. All right, let's close with a word of prayer then. Father, we come before you and we thank you for giving us your word. Father, it is our owner's manual. It's been a few years since Brad talked through the book of James. But, you know, I still remember that Brad talked about James not being a rule book, but a wool book. It's what we look like as, as followers of Jesus Christ. Father, that's the reason you gave us your word. To help order our steps. To help order our lives. To keep us in right relationship with you. And Father, involved in that are the principles of, of, of church discipline. And those were given to us by Jesus as a way to orderly and operate our lives on a day-by-day -day basis and what you do in the church. And Father, this is for one purpose, and that is to glorify you. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for tonight. I thank you for those that are here. Father, I pray your blessings upon every family represented here tonight and the families of our fellowship, wherever they may be tonight. There's a bunch over in the children's building, uh, in the youth building. Father, I pray that your blessings will just go before us every day and help us live according to your word. Thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. All right. Y'all go get your kid up.